So there's tons of... Oh, shoot. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. I think I'm going to get a speeding ticket. Anyway. What? What? Maybe, maybe. <clears throat> but, um... Maybe I should be more focused on my driving than this car cast. But, uh, maybe this cop will be nice. So what did I learn? Okay, so it's third most densely populated city. Which means that it, you, you don't drive in Vancouver. You definitely don't drive. Which was a mistake, because I rented a car and flew in from Se and drove in from Seattle. Because I wanted to pass by some old childhood areas. I grew up in Burlington. And I wanted to drive by and see it. But actually, I'm so pressed for time right now, I may not even see that. Especially if I get pulled over by this police car, I'm totally going to be pressed for time to catch my flight home. Which will be a big disappointment. I decided to take a tour bus. There was a free tour. Um, from 1 to 4. And, or, 1 to 4.30 is a long tour. And, uh, but it was very interesting, and the, the tour guide told us a lot of things. Another trivia fact I learned. In Canada, Native Americans are called First Nations, which is kind of cool. So, apart from that, those little trivia facts, Vancouver is a bustling city. A lot, a lot of youth, a lot of energy, a lot of style, and people are very nice. I don't know if just the people I ran into, but everybody seemed immensely nice. And, and uh, of course, it was a beautiful area. Stayed in a hotel overlooking the harbor. There's lots of ships on the harbor. Almost any time of day, 
they're like these giant ships out in the, the bay there trading from China something and Vancouver has this giant mound of sulfur that uh, that that's like on the edge of the bay it's, it's, it looks green yellow it's just probably thousands and thousands of pounds it stacks up and, and just a giant stack giant cone I mean but uh, I should probably talk a little bit about the conference but uh, I'm planning to blog about it overall it was a good conference there's lots of information there and I attended a lot of the sessions on web 2.0 and things like that of folks on one on folksonomy another on taxonomy actually that was a workshop another on Dita and um, of course you always attend a few sessions or a couple of sessions where you wish you'd chosen another one but the majority of the ones I attended were good and worthwhile and and even though they may not have totally made me a hundred percent knowledgeable about the topic which who can expect that I I felt like it gave me an introduction to something I need to know more about and one of those in particular the one that weighs most heavily on my mind is the one on folksonomy Actually, that was delivered by Kevin Shoesmith, who was supposed to give me a tutorial on Expression Engine, but he had family duties. But uh, anyway, his, his talk, he got into a lot of philosophical things, which surprised me, but, but it was definitely an eye-opener. I didn't know there was a raging philosophical debate about, about folksonomy and taxonomy. Apparently, it's a linguist's... Excuse me, it's a linguist uh, forum there. A lot, of, a lot of discussion. So, the reason that I started to think most heavily about this is because it does relate very much to blogging. WordPress is about to release version 2.2. And uh, in this version, they will include tagging. So, prior to this, if you wanted to tag your posts, then you had to install a, a plugin called Ultimate Tag Warrior or some other tagging pl plugins. So it wasn't built in, but but this new release will have it built in. So under each post will be a little space called tags, and you can just type a few words. Type a word space, another word space, and, and you can add tags around your posts. And why would you want to do this? Well, because once you start blogging for a while and accumulating lots of content on your blog, let's say right now on my blog I have about 170 posts. Keep looking in my rearview mirror to check for that police car, but luckily I don't see I don't see him or her. So I have about 170 posts on my blog. That's a lot of content. You know, some are long posts, some are short posts, and I have about seven to eight categories. I try to categorize the content, and some of the categories are blogging, podcasting, WordPress, technical writing, STC, open source, I can't remember anymore. So I have all of this content, and I have to somehow organize it, and it's just growing. I'm posting more. I posted two more little blog, blog entries yesterday. Where do they go? 
So now I'm faced with the challenge of how am I going to implement tags so that they can help users find the content and help readers find the content on my site because one of the major major elements of my site that I my blog site that I really like is that under each post now I have a little section that says related posts and I've just created this through this plugin called uh, the related entries plugin which by the way had horrible documentation on how to install it the author no longer seems to be around but uh basically it automates what what posts are related to your post so now if you go to my blog and you start reading a post under it you'll see posts that are supposed to be related and sometimes they are related it's like wow this is great and other times they have nothing to do with the current post or if they do it's really in a strange way how they may be related <clears throat> so what I'm hoping to do is to use this tagging that's going to be built into 2.2 to, to make it so that the related post section is accurate. And this can be really powerful. Because think about think about all the blogs in the world. There are millions of blogs. And the content is just in reverse chronological order. A, a lot of blogs are categorized. They have categories that archive their content. But a lot of blogs just archive it by date. Which is one of the worst ways to archive your content unless you're writing a personal journal. So, blogs are really becoming the same that They're posing the same issue as organizations with large amounts of content. And in this workshop that I had today with Seth Early, who was a great speaker, by the way, really a dynamic guy, it was really interesting. Kind of, it's hard to sit there for four hours, but uh, he made it entertaining. And one of the things that really caught my attention is he passed out this envelope full of little words written down on little pieces of paper. And basically he had gone to the Home Depot site and written all these words like you know, tools and outdoors, kitchen, faucet, install, fix, plumbing. And he had about 60, 50 words there. And he said, okay, arrange this into a logical structure, logical grouping created taxonomy out of all these things. So the taxonomy, this, the, this, I don't know, the practice of taxonomy is to basically sort things into logical groupings so that users can find them. I'm sure there's a better definition, but essentially this relates to websites when you have, or any kind of organization's content, when you have tons of content and lots of different categories, lots of different documentation types, um, different departments, different topics, how are you going to organize it in a way that users can actually find the content? And so now I'm thinking of my blog and I think I have 170 posts and people are just finding the posts on the home page, but I've written tons of good stuff possibly about the very topic they're reading and if I could just organize it in such a way that users could connect with all the other material that I've written on the same topic, I think it would be a better reading experience. And I I could, if it were successful, if the related post section were actually accurate, I, I could crank it up to 10 related entries. Right now I just have five. So, the folksonomy, and I assume that, uh, yeah, 
you know, it's not even clear in my mind right now whether my own tagging is a folksonomy or a taxonomy. I'm assuming it's a folksonomy, but at the same time, I'm the only author doing all the tagging. It's not as if I'm having hundreds of users tag content. So, at any rate, let's say I start to tag the content with more granular tags. Well, I already have category tags. So how, I mean, I already have categories under which these posts fall, so I'm assuming that these tags would then have to be more granular, or would have to be more specific in the way they relate it. So if I talk about a company X, that wouldn't necessarily be a, its own category, company X category, maybe I'm talking about corporate blogging or something, but I could put in, in the tags something more granular like company X. Or if I have just a category in blogging, I can begin to make my tags more specific, like corporate blogging or academic blogging, things like that, so that it would narrow it down more. Now, one thing that I haven't heard of is whether WordPress has any any plugins that are going to build related entries out of the tags that are included. Most likely, the tags will just be links to other posts with those same tags. But my experience is that when I read an article, if I see a bunch of links at the bottom that are that just have those keywords, it's not half as appealing as having the the actual um, the title of the article because the titles of the articles can be really interesting. All right, but enough about that. Let's talk about other things. What did I learn? I learned a lot of things socially about myself, and I don't really know if they're appropriate for a podcast on technical writing, but one, I really miss my family. I have three kids, and my wife was home alone for about four days, and you know, you can be in the coolest place on earth, but if you're if you're by yourself, if you're all alone, it's no fun. I was on the very top floor, I had a harbor view, and, and it was just like, I didn't have anybody to share it with, so it was really no fun. So, that was like, I know I knew that, of course, that's nothing revelatory, but a lot of times we forget how, how much others mean to us until they're, they're not there. Uh, I also learned, I learned that I can learn a lot from listening to podcasts as well. I know that conferences are great, and, and part of the reason they're great is that you interact with other technical writers almost outside of the conference sessions, but uh, I feel like some of the podcasts I've listened to have, have been just as dang informative as having attended sessions. I know, I know that's probably a radical comment, but if podcasting takes off, it's going to unconference the world. Then again, a lot of podcasts are recordings of conferences. Um, what else? I, oh, yes, okay. So here's a very interesting little social gem. When you meet people who have been reading your, your, pod, your, reading your blog and listening to your podcast, a lot of times they feel like they know you really well. And so they feel kind of comfortable around you. And I met a few people who were really talkative, and it was great to meet them. And I was so happy that, that people had actually listened to, uh, or that actually had 
come up to meet me. But at the same time, since maybe they didn't have blocks, or I didn't know them, it was a little bit unbalanced because they they were very friendly to me, but here I was meeting them for the first time. So that was a little weird. But definitely, when people read your blog, it's even if you've never met them, when you meet them, it's almost as if you know them and have been friends for a long time. So I got to meet a few people, um, and it was a lot of fun. I met the DMN Communications podcast guys, Aaron and Scott, and you know they sound just like they do on their podcast. They really, uh, and they're, they were really cool guys. Uh, I got along really well with them. And I met my co-host, uh, Heidi Hansen from Seattle, and she was pretty cool too. Um, so, you know, and, and some people, I had more to talk about than others. One of the things that just blew my mind is that I finally got to meet Tom Haller, who I had interviewed probably three months ago for our podcast, and I, and I was so happy to meet him, but he had no recollection of the podcast, or me, or anything, and I was just flabbergasted, I was like, what? I couldn't believe it, but, uh, he was a, he was a great guy, he's very energetic, and he apparently travels all around the world, a lot, doing exactly what, I don't know, but, advocating plain language, I'm sure, is in there somewhere. Yeah, I'm coming up on, oh, I'm coming up on my hometown. I'm so excited. I grew up in Burlington, which almost nobody has ever heard of, but it's 60 miles south of Canada, the Canadian border, up in, uh, right below Vancouver. And I lived here until I was about, you know, well, until I hit high school. And then I moved to Tacoma. But, uh, I actually have an old friend that I should look up, but, um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna look him up. I kind of feel bad about it, but I don't have a whole lot of time, and I haven't told him I'm coming. And uh, I'll just have to catch him another time. Kind of, you know. There's something about childhood that sometimes you just don't want to revisit. I mean, what if I go to visit this guy and he doesn't even remember me? I call him up and he's kind of says who and and doesn't really remember. I mean. Or what if he's turned into somebody who I, I just uh, would not get along with at all anymore? Or, uh, you know, what if he's just not... What if we... I get there and there's there's nothing really to say. Uh, you just kind of recount your past five years and then, then you're shrugging your shoulders. You know, friendship comes out of a lot of mutual experiences. But, um... So, anyway, I'm, I'm going to go through the, I'm going to go back and drive by the old house I grew up, um, look at, look at the old streets, and I know it won't be the same, so it's kind of like when you read a book, it's, it's arranged in your mind in a certain way, and then you go see a movie of the book, and it totally destroys your, what you had in mind, uh, that's probably what will happen, but, um, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, I want to talk more about the conference because I, I have to admit a major screw-up on my part. I don't have a laptop, right? So, I because I'm a desktop person, I, I don't travel a lot. I kind of stay in Florida. So I had to borrow my brother-in-law's laptop, which 
which uh, my my father who who went to get it said that I would have better luck getting his daughter Rachel than that laptop. But he was very nice and loaned it to me. But it was a Mac, all right. And I, you know, I I was excited to kind of use a Mac, and and I'm all open to it. But but there's a learning curve with Macs, and I didn't have time to to prepare because basically I got it the night before, and then I was out the door. So I had this little microphone that I was going to plug in to the side of the Mac and start recording. Well, uh, it didn't work, basically, and I tried changing the sound input to the microphone, and it didn't recognize it, and basically I recorded a few little, uh, a few short little interviews, but they didn't turn out very well, and I'm kind of embarrassed about it. So I'm going to call some of these people, <clears throat> particularly Char, James Chaney, and the other authors, Brett, Brenda, Hudner, and Kit. Uh, I'm going to call them and interview them over the phone. And I'm hoping to do the same with Salim Ismail, who was the keynote speaker. So, you know, you sometimes think that, that uh, just because I've done a lot of podcasts that, I, that I'm like this audio engineer and can just orchestrate podcasts in person too, but it's an entirely different audio setup, record, recording in person versus recording over the phone entirely different over the phone you use Skype and you have software that will record the conversation or you use other other methods in person you get the whole problem of microphonage and I'm gonna have to basically break down one of these days and buy a fancy digital recorder like a Marantz or something or a, or a H4 Zoom or an Ederall uh, I met up with fellow podcaster Harry Miller and uh, he was telling me about his setup he records music actually so he's he is one of those sound engineer junkies or geeks he really knows all that stuff and uh, you know I I've got to make an investment in some equipment so the H4 zoom recorder costs four hundred dollars and I need a couple of microphones each at about $200 or at least 150 so I'm looking at $700 I might try to raise that money through this podcast and uh, and we'll see for the for the STC conference maybe I'll give it another shot but uh, you know another difficulty with trying to do podcasts at conferences is the fact that people are busy uh, you go into sessions and when you're not going to sessions, you're like eating lunch. And then in the afternoon, people di- or in the evening, people disappear. They either flew in to give their presentation, and then they're flying out, or they're going out to eat again, or they have plans, or something. So it's not as if people are just sitting around at these conferences with nothing to do, waiting to be podcasted. Although, although that that uh, may be the case for some. But anyway, so was a screw up on my part. I, I really was thinking that I would have like tons of podcasts, but it didn't work out that way, and I apologize. But um, strangely, uh, I also kind of had this false assumption that a lot that everybody just knew about tech writer voices, and and they just either weren't into podcasting, so that maybe they didn't listen to it, or or they just uh, I don't know for whatever reason. But uh, when I started my presentation on blogging. I asked people if they had heard of Tech Writer Voices, and I only had four people raise their hand out of about 30, so, uh, so, and one person later said, oh, cool, there's a podcast on technical writing, and, uh, she was, but now she was, 
a librarian taxonomist uh, or a taxonomist with a librarian back library science background um, so uh, there's a little downer that, that more people hadn't heard of this podcast because there's there's been an article in the STC magazine if you search for it it on iTunes, you're going to find it. If you keyword search for it, you're going to find it. So, uh, but, you know, and we have 500 subscribers to the podcast, but when you look at how many technical writers there are in the world who probably own iPods, that's like one less than 1%, probably. At any rate, so, uh, Speaking of, I know I'm rambling here. I'm driving. All right, this is this is the this is a car cast. Is what they're called. And I'm approaching Burlington. I hope I don't pass it on by while I'm jabbering away. I may just have to pause here. But I met with a couple of Microsoft people, and and learned some interesting things about Microsoft. One of the interesting things is that they're very tribal. I'm using that metaphorically. Tribal in the sense that you may think that Microsoft has this really tight-knit community of writers who are all closely following the same standards and they have lots of, like, you know, department meetings and they're really, like, uh, walk in the same direction with with um, the way they're writing their documentation and everything. And, of course, they do have the Microsoft manual style, which they, I'm pretty sure, all everybody at Microsoft uses. However... They're really not, like, tightly knit. They, uh... Oh, I'm coming up on Burlington. Half a mile. Chucking that drive. They're not tightly knit. They, uh... In fact, they often don't work to work closely with each other at all. Each product has its own little set of technical writers. So, for example, if you're on the Microsoft Dynamics team and you write for that product, well, then you, um... You're going to be you're going to be located in in that section. But if you oh, I think I got off too early. Dang it! Ah. But um, <laughs> laptop just kind of fell as I was turning. I hope that it's in a nice strong case. Okay, so so and if you're working for another project, let's say you're on Visual Studio, well then you're you're based with the Visual Studio department. And here's the killer. A lot of this, a lot of, uh, they, they don't even use the same tools. Like, one department may use Word, another department may use, or another area may use X-Metal. And, and, um, yeah, it just blew my mind. And, and another crazy thing is a lot of their programs don't even work with Vista, which is, is just mind-boggling. You think you're having compatibility problems with Vista? Microsoft is having compatibility problems with Vista. It's like they created a monster and, and now it's even at Microsoft. But uh, what else about Microsoft? So uh, they, it, it looked, oh, because I, I drove through Seattle and I met with Harry, I noticed that the people get to wear casual clothes which uh, was really cool. I'm um, driving past the high school that I didn't attend because I moved to another city. But yeah, I would have gone to this high school right here, Burlington Edison High School. So yeah, they get to wear casual clothes, and um, 
I, I, that's not really something that I'm totally eager to do, I have to admit. I, I don't even really like to wear jeans. I'm a khaki pants kind of person, and um, I just feel that they're more comfortable. But it was neat to see them, to meet with all the different people. I met with a lady who, oh, Fairhaven Avenue, this is it. This is Main Street, Burlington. I met with a lady who had moved to Canada from Boston. Thrifty food. Sorry, I know. I'm get, I'm moving off. All right, I'm going to have to come back to the, the lady from Canada for a minute. Thrifty Foods. This is... Oh, it's closed. It's empty. Oh, man. One of my baseball buddies used to be there. And uh, later found out that um, I met his, his girlfriend when I was at college. And she was a really cool person. So I got to kind of reconnect with, with them and him yeah things have things have definitely changed but a lot of it's the same Knutson building man that thing's old you know one place I would really like to go is the El Gitano um, oh man we're passing the Canton restaurant stoves shoes and clothes wow this is crazy all this stuff, you know, it really hasn't changed a whole lot. My father used to own a tavern right here, and there's not been anything built up on top of it. Um, the same, the same kind of look. Alright, there's some tattoos. Now I'm going, El Hitano is still here. You know, I may just have to stop back and eat dinner there. My father used to take me there when I was a boy. I have great memories of going there ordering a burrito. I guess that's why I always order burrito at Mexican restaurants. Now I'm passing, oh, the little corner market. Yeah, this is what I, oh, this is morphed into Fairhaven Market. It used to be O'Henry's. Oh, man. Man, I gotta take some pictures. This is, this is crazy. Yeah, I used to uh, walk there and buy stuff, little candy. Oh, we used to hang out there. Since I was little, we used to walk to that little corner market. I'm going to drive back tomorrow. I thought, man, I'd love to come back here. Such beautiful. The grass is so soft. People are so nice. Well, I don't know about the nice people. The grass is soft and the, the air and the atmosphere is so nice. No allergies like I get in Florida. And I wonder if I, oh, we'll see an old high an old, I guess, geez. K through 8, what is that? An old junior school buddy. Alright, I'm turning left onto Rio Vista. You know, I still remember my zip code and address. I've never forgotten it. There's a little church on the corner. I went to maybe twice. We left our house kind of decrepit, I have to say, when we moved. It just didn't survive a whole lot. And I'm going to have to take a picture of it. thought about... Oh, oh. Yeah, there it is. Nine one two. Holy smokes, the place is covered with cars. There lots of stuff there. They've made it beautiful, actually. Oh, there's the cherry tree. I used to sit in that cherry. Wow. Man, it looks like they're having a party there. And here's my neighbor, Myrna, who always had the most beautiful lawn and still does. Oh man, I used to I used to do cartwheels in her lawn. I, oh, but it was. It looks so small. It used to look much bigger. Oh, but it's beautiful. Alright, I'm going to have to go by my old school. 
You know, these houses, they just look so clean. Everything looks clean in Washington. Oh, there's a rhododendron bush. Oh, we had one like that too. But you know, I don't know if I would move back here. Once you leave a place, uh, I don't know. Just, I kind of, oh, but it's, the mountains are right here. You can see where they've, they've forested them because they sell a lot of logs. Man, this was great to grow up here. My my parents were so good to choose this place. Uh, oh yeah, there's a meadow. Oh, I can't believe it's not even a paved road yet. Man. Alright, Lucille. Of course it's not a school day. Oh, they've totally done this. They've rebuilt the school. They've, they've modernized it. Oh, it's probably a high school now. I used to play basketball in the gym here. Oh, it was great. I wonder if they, uh, I'm sure they've redone their old outside court. All these little kids are riding by with helmets on. I never had helmets as a kid. Yeah, the school's gone. The school's gone. The little basketball court. No, the basketball court is sort of here. It's new. People are playing baseball. Oh, it's beautiful. You know, of all the places... Well, I shouldn't romanticize this. Like anybody's school, it was a place where the playground was a war ground. And you had your bullies and your enemies. And you had your, your, your close friends who were cool. And you had your cliques and your groups and things like that, you know. So, But there it is. There it is. Rocky Hodges is a guy who taught me how to play basketball. He unfortunately died of cancer. He was a great guy. Man, I still have things echoing through my head about playing defense. Now I'm going to go down the dead end road where I used to always go as a kid. Man, does it sound like I want to move to the country? I do. I do. Unfortunately, I'm in the wrong profession for that. Oh, but they built up a little suburb around here. Houses that look modern. But there's still a field. And it used to, I used to walk to my friend Rob's house down here. At the end of this. End of this gravel road. Can you hear it? Yeah, I think it's going to be a dead end. But, uh... You know, there's something about being able to walk around outdoors as a child. You just don't get that in the city. Yeah. Oh, man. Ah, now I'm really having a bad memory because I killed a duck out here once with a BB gun. It wasn't very good. I still see it spinning in circles and quacking because I hit it in the head. Never, never give kids BB guns, by the way. Ooh, and the slew. Yes, the slew. It uh, still is a very yucky slew. Looks like it's expanded. When I was a kid once, I was running out here in the field in my friend's backyard. Stepped on a nail. Had to go to the hospital. It was right around here. You know, now I'm sure there are other kids, but, but there's a whole suburb development that wasn't here before. 
And, uh, yeah. Well, sorry, thanks for accompanying me down my trip memory lane. I'm sure this, uh, this podcast, if you're still listening to this podcast, you're probably on a trip yourself. But I, I think I've seen pretty much what, oh no, I have to visit one more place. Oh yes. One more place. Grew up, well, after my parents divorced when I was about 10, my dad moved into another house. And, uh, was in a trailer park about a mile and a half from the house where I grew up as, as a kid. So I'm going to drive into that trailer park, if I can still remember how to get there, and just see what it looks like. You know, some people think trailer parks are just like where white trash people live and people who are really poor, but in all honesty, when you're growing up, it's not a bad place because there's lots of other kids right around you. You're not so isolated from other people. Of course, the other people who live around you usually are, uh, well not usually, but the ones I lived next to weren't such good people, but nevertheless, they were friends. Burlington Park, oh, I used to ride my bike off these mounds, these dirt mounds, and they're still here after all these years and how countless numbers of people crashed on their bicycles. But it's become a beautiful park. Burlington, Washington, beautiful little town. Picturesque. I want to grow up in a little town. Where I live now, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. St. Petersburg, Florida. South St. Pete. The area itself is not bad. South St. Pete, where we chose to live, is the worst. There are gunshots at least twice a week. Sometimes really close by. Drug dealers on the corner. Trash. It's not good. At the same time, there's really good fishing and there's beautiful beaches. So I can't complain. Um, well, I can complain, but I sh- I, if I want to be fair and balanced. Alright, so let, while I'm driving to the trailer park, I'll uh, get back to the lady on Canada. So I met a lady, and uh, she was really nice. But she said she had left in left Boston in 2004 because of politics. And uh, I couldn't hardly believe it because I guess I'm so into the tech scene that I, I just kind of turned politics off. I glanced at the headlines and that's about it. Um, I used to listen to NPR religiously before before I got into podcasting and you know, I don't miss it a whole lot. So occasionally I'll turn back onto NPR and I hear the same thing. It's another explosion, suicide bomber, Baghdad, or this and that about the war in Iraq. and It, it doesn't seem to change. But I know politics can be super interesting. But, but this person had felt so strongly about it that she switched to Canada. And she actually really liked Vancouver a lot. And she was really happy there. And, uh... I guess one thing you have to learn when you when you move to Vancouver is that you're not going to have a car anymore. There's my old friend Jim Hill's area. It looks like it's been chopped up into another subdivision. It's amazing how I still... Re- I haven't been here for probably 15 years. But um, I still remember where to go. Oh, wow. I'm coming across the country fields. 
Oh, and they haven't developed on them. Yeah, when I was a kid, there's there's fields all around. And, uh, yeah, especially near the trailer park, it was great. I had a motorcycle, and I would go back behind the fields in Skagit County. Uh, that is to Skagit River and and the surrounding fields and oh, it was beautiful. Man, I should go visit my friend. I'm actually like a I'm like a mile from his house. I feel really, really bad, but I haven't told him, and it would be really abrupt, and my plane is coming. Oh, but I should I should go see. Oh, I may check. I may. Anyway, all right. So I'm at the trailer park. I'm just gonna go in, and I'm gonna come out, and I hope. I hope, uh, I hope nobody sees me who recognizes me. Cause, um, oops, oops, oops. I hope I don't see Jason Osborne. I hope he's still not living here. That will be really sad. <clears throat> Some kids. People are looking at me like, uh, you don't belong here, buddy. You're Subaru Outback from Arizona. We got cats on the porch, it looks like. Oh, trailer's there. And yes, it still looks pretty bad. It looks like they built a porch and half of it is made of tarp. But the field behind it is still beautiful. Yeah. Whoa, whoa. It's kind of Mexican compound now. Alright, I'm done. I'm out of here. Yeah, don't want to be in a trailer park anymore. Although, if I were choosing trailer parks, this wouldn't be a bad one because it's, it's adjacent to a giant field with a row of beautiful trees next to a river. Um, so yeah. Okay, I'm getting a little lost in thought here. Uh, back to the lady in Canada. Hmm. Should I visit my friend? I guess I'll go visit him. Alright, I'm gonna go call him. I don't even know if he lives around here. Uh, would I be dropping in? Alright, I'm calling him. Alright, I'm shutting you off, podcast. <coughs> well, my friend wasn't there. I called him up, and actually his son answered, which was probably... Just like the little Rob I used to know, and maybe it would look just like him, I don't know, but he was at some kind of work project. He works for the for the outdoors, and who knows what. I should have contacted him much, much earlier, set up a time. But, uh, yeah, now I'm out of Burlington, and basically it's purged of my system, having gone through there, reminisced for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes was all I needed. Because as I'm leaving, it made me think how sad it would be if somebody who I knew there still lived there. In other words, <clears throat> small towns are nice, but uh, if you live your entire life in a small town and you never get out of it and see the world, uh, then you're really limiting yourself. I've definitely seen the world. Um, and I can, I can give more details about that some other time. But I want to get back to the conference. Uh, more
more lingering thoughts as Tom drives back to the Seattle airport, Seattle Tacoma Airport. <coughs> One, the first workshop I attended was on DITA, and, and it was taught by Alan Hauser, and it was really good. I actually, it is one of those things where I don't feel, I did before the conference, I didn't feel like I really understood that well. After the conference, I feel like I could almost go and write did a, um, did a structured content, that is. It was, it was that good, actually. And one of the reasons that I really liked it is because Alan actually walked through an example of, of writing did a content. He did it did an actual little manual course, but he used something called, uh, some kind of like IBM, M IBM map modeler, can't remember, but it was a, like a WYSIWYG tool, he could drag around topics, establish hierarchies in, in relationships, <clears throat> just by their order near each other, then he could out, he basically saved that and output that as a, a did a map. So this tool, this modeling tool, really automated the did a map and made it really simple. So then all that left, he was writing the, the topics, and that's just a matter of tagging things correctly. You know, I was at the TriXML conference last year, and I remember Kay Eatmeer or something saying that a lot of people get hung up on how confusing and complicated XML may seem. And it really is just tags. There's nothing more. It's not programming. It's just tagging. <coughs> Excuse me. So, and that's all that it is. It's just a, a set of tags. And, um, alright, but before I convert to Dita, uh, there's two main assembling blocks that, that I can't seem to get around. And one is the fact that although it is just tags, uh, it still tags. It's not, at least, he wasn't showing any kind of WYSIWYG editors. I know there, they exist. X-Metal, there's a new one called the Dita Style Studio, and uh, Dita Storm. Uh, their, their tools are emerging. <clears throat> but by and large, if I had, right now, if I, if I wanted to write Dita, I feel like I would have to surround it, surround all my content with these tags. Now, that might be fine for me if I were a lone writer, and I could master it, and, and you know, with probably in a few weeks' time, I could totally be up to speed and writing all this content, but I don't want my content to be encrypted by all these tags. I want to be able to see it. It's kind of like when you turn the paragraph symbol on in Word. I'm like, ah, can't even read it anymore. <coughs> Some people love that, though. At any rate, so for adopting Dita without a WYSIWYG tool, for a department of people who may not really feel comfortable writing in code like that, um, it's kind of a big, it's kind of a showstopper. You want to have a tool that's easy to use, and I think the tools are emerging. Um, we've uh, definitely they're emerging. I mean, Dita's what been released for a year and a half or something. I think 2005 is when IBM made it a standard or released it, and uh, so. So there's that, but then the, the other, and I'm, this other stumbling block may just be my ignorance, but my understanding is that the Dita Open Toolkit publishes HTML help only, a chum file. So, 
So if you want online help, you get a you get a chum file chm. But uh, ever since Microsoft released some kind of security patch, those don't display over networks. So unless you're packaging your online help with your product product, which I don't think is a good idea because then you're stuck with it there. You can't update it when, when you need to. Um, if you're doing that you're fine but if not then like what good is a chum file anymore I think in order to get around the whole chum file issue in other words when you click on a chum file and if, it, if it's if it exists on a remote server in a network you, it doesn't display and to get around it I think you have to adjust the user's registry settings right yeah and people really feel comfortable uh, editing their registry but <clears throat> I could just be misinformed. I know there is something called Eclipse Help, which may be the equivalent of of like a Web Help, which which is more, uh, which is totally browser friendly. So I don't know. You know, I I like the concept of Ditto. I like the the concept of a standard because it's something we really need, especially right now. All these tools are out there. You know, let's say you author one thing in Flare, and another in RoboHelp, and another in Frame, and another in Word, and another in Doc to Help, and then, you know, what? It seems like if we could just merge on a standard so that, let's say you, uh, you inherit a file from another company and you want to modify it or something, or if you, you just switch tools, you know, that should be able to easily move your content. Content should not be married to the tool. And uh, that's one great thing I love about WordPress, by the way. It's not married to the tool. You can export all your posts in an XML file. <clears throat> so it was a good workshop, and I really liked it. And the, the taxonomy workshop at the end was also excellent. So, so again, those were two stellar uh, experiences. Very informative. The other, the other uh, session I want to talk about is the content management session, which was moderated by Scott Abel, and it had about four or five uh, content management experts. Well, content management is basically a system that you implement that helps you coordinate, track, and manage your your assets, your information assets. So, in a help department, you, you may have lots of different files, different versions of the same file. It may be localized in other languages. It may go through a, a, a special life cycle. Maybe passed from from writer to editor to SME. Um, so if you have this content in a content management system, you can better track all of this information. Now, I think that this would only, like, you'd only need a content management system if you currently don't have a good handle on your documentation. But that's just my opinion. I'm sure, I'm sure uh, it, would, it would benefit any department, but it seems like you kind of have to have a sizable department, like a sizable amount of information before you think you need to spend 10000 or 100000 or a million dollars on a content management system. And then they talked about the idea of enterprise content management and how that's 
this idea that a lot of people have, where if you're gonna if you're gonna Im implement a content management system for a tech pubs department, well, you know if that information is important, why not why not incorporate all the enterprise content in there? And there are lots of problems with that, but essentially that's what a lot of people do. And, and you know, I was talking to another writer from Seattle between sessions, and uh, she said that a lot of a lot of people do try to implement enterprise content management, and and, and it doesn't work well because they don't they don't put the necessary effort into the whole taxonomy of it. And, and setting it up so that people can find things and, and you know there's an art to that um, if you have a hundred thousand documents and you're going to try to arrange them into one system so that people can find it well better hire somebody who knows what they're doing that's all I can say because um, just just trying to, to arrange some kind of logical structure you know, that doesn't really work unless it's unless you really derive that from the users. <clears throat> um, you know, somebody in the taxonomy workshop said talked about the the Google solution. A lot of people say, "Well, we'll just get Google and we'll <coughs> we'll use Google to to find all this stuff. We won't worry about how we're going to organize it. You just search for it and find it. Because of course, you search and find everything in Google, but a lot of the way Google works is by linking, by ranking pages according to links. So if, for example, a lot of people link to my blog, 151 to be exact, which puts me at a tech neurotic ranking of 26,000. Because of that, uh, when you Google my name, Tom Johnson, yeah, I'm actually like number seven in Google, which is astounding to me considering how common my name is. But only it only works. I only appear on the first page because there are 151 links pointing to me. Google puts its uh, stock in the idea that people link to content, and that link is is a token of reliability. People don't link to spam or unimportant sites. So if something is important gets linked to, and therefore it's going to rise rise up. It's one testament to the power of the blogosphere, by the way. You know, if you have a product, and you're trying to get search engine visibility, which is the portal to the world, of course, everybody enters Google to find your information, or most everyone. Uh, blogs can help you move your anything up to the first page somewhat easily, but that's another discussion. So... Google doesn't exactly work in the enterprise setting because you don't have that same linking. People aren't, it's not like calculating its algorithm based on all these links. Um, so it, it has to rely on other methods. But then searches are also problematic because different words mean different things to different people. Like the word pitch, right? If I, if I tag something with pitch or if I use that sort of classification um, it could mean a baseball pitch it could mean a music pitch it could mean a slope pitch so there's that and then there's different users have different words for the same thing <clears throat> so um, 
getting a content management system and, and organizing all your content in it so that users can actually find it is is no small feat. And and if you said about that, definitely check out some of the Seth early early content and things like that. Um, I also attended a session on Web 2.0 by Rob Rosewood, which I really liked. One of the things that he talked about, which I thought was definitely cool, was when when users visit your site and they search for something, you should offer them an RSS feed of that search, so they can so they can get uh, get that feed in their their feed reader, uh, which is cool. Cool. But then he said, so after you look at what people are searching for. Then the next time you create your newsletter, you make sure you fill it full of the stuff people have been searching for. And that makes perfect sense. Unfortunately, a lot of us can't measure what people are searching for in our help files. But I believe the latest edition of MathCap that's being released, version 3, contains a feedback server that will allow that, that kind of um, information to be measured and tracked. So, Speaking of Madcap, they were there along with Adobe. And in fact, I attended an online help tool snapshot where Mike Hamilton got up and, and showed Madcap Flare. And right after him, RJ Hakez of Adobe showed RoboHub 6. What a fun little little uh, one-two step that was. Um, oh, and before them, Michael Bozos of Envision showed the Dita Style Studio, or Dita Studio, which I don't think, it hasn't been released yet, but it's about to. But anyway, uh, back to this Madcap comment. So the feedback server allows you to see exactly what people are searching for, but also allows users to make comments on your files if you want. And it makes great graphs so that you can see what topics people are using and uh, allows users to rank the topic. So I think that's really a cool step in the direction of Web 2.0. <clears throat> and, and Adobe was talking about RoboHub 6 and uh, especially talking about the server component, which is something that I, I don't have. I, w I wish I did. But it looks pretty cool. Um, it looks worthwhile. Uh, the only thing about Adobe is that they don't really tell you what they're totally working on, but he gave a pretty strong hint. Robo 